Have you ever had what you would describe as a miraculous experience and it resulted in your faith being built up? Has there ever been a time when you, you believe that God just delivered you in a big way and it, it grew your trust in him? Maybe you're emerging on the freeway and a big rig doesn't see you and, and uh, changes lanes right into you, hits your car, you spin out, you slam into the wall, your car is totaled, but you emerge totally unscathed, not even a little scratch. You would you praise God for that. You attribute that to his hand of deliverance and providence, and your, your belief in God would be bolstered. That would probably build your faith. Maybe you go to the doctor and you get an MRI because you've been having all these headaches, and lo and behold, they find a brain tumor, and it, it doesn't look good. But you tell others to pray, and that you would be healed fully. A month goes by, you have a follow-up MRI. The doctors are flabbergasted because... The tumor is gone. There's not even a trace of it. They call it a medical miracle, but you know it was God. And so again, you would you'd praise him. Your trust in him would be bolstered and, and grown. Maybe you got laid off and you don't know what to do. If you don't come up with $2,100, you're going to enter foreclosure, lose your house as well. You don't have any money left, but a friend gives you a check for 1500 Someone puts 500 cash in your mailbox and walking down the street, you stumble upon a $100 bill. All adds up to 2100 You would call that a God thing. You would see God's hand in that. You would thank him for providing. We've all heard these, these types of stories, how in times of distress, God delivers his people in unexpected but unmistakable ways. And when it does happen, you would be right to thank God and praise him for Delivering you, your right to grow in your faith and deepen your trust in him as he proves himself good and caring. But now for the big question, is the opposite true? When, when things don't go right, what about when things don't turn out the way you hope? Do you then have a reason to curse God? What if you get into that car accident and you don't emerge unscathed, but you're paralyzed from the waist down? Because that happens too. Or you go back for that second MRI, and even after all that prayer, the tumor has not disappeared. It has grown larger. Or you find no checks in the mail, and your house forecloses. This happens as well. And these stories are all too common. Maybe something like this has happened to you. So then if, if we are to praise God when life breaks in our favor, does that mean you are justified in cursing God when it doesn't? Or relatedly, when things go your way, it builds your faith. But when things don't go your way, should that diminish your faith? Is that then an occasion to doubt God? Would you be right to question if God is really good or wise or in control? Maybe you've been there, you've been at that place. If so, you wouldn't be right, but you wouldn't be alone. Narrowing in on this response of doubt, that too is all too common even among faithful Christians. Circumstances don't go your way. Expectations blow up in your face. Life is hard. As a result, more than a few have entertained doubt. Like, does God care? Is he there? How could this be his plan for my life? Where is God? I'll say again, such doubt, it's not the right response, but it is a common response. The right response is to cling to God and trust his promises no matter what, because as you truly examine your life, you'll find he never actually breaks any of his promises. But it's just that you might not rightly know his promises. Maybe you've set 
unbiblical expectations of God. But God never does wrong. We are weak, hence doubt is common. In fact, the response of doubt when things don't go as you expect, it's, it's not just a symptom for false believers. It's, it's among true believers. We're talking Old Testament prophets to New Testament apostles. Many of them have doubt on their record. If you've ever wrestled with doubt, at the very least, I guess you could say you're in good company. That's because even the greatest man who ever lived up until the time of Jesus had a moment of weakness and doubted. And do you know who that is? It's John the Baptist. Like Jesus said, among those born of women, there's none greater than John. But we find in our passage today that even John doubted Jesus. We wonder, how could this be? How do you explain this? What does this mean? How does this inform and address our own experiences of doubt? I think this is something we need to find out. So you can open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 11. So we resume our time going through Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 11. And this morning we're entering a new chapter and a new section in Matthew's gospel. Matthew, you recall, he organizes his account of Christ around these five major sermons or discourses. Chapter 10 was the second. Each one concludes with some variation of the same phrase, now, it happened when Jesus finished. It happened when Jesus finished. And here, actually, in chapter 11, verse 1, this verse is, is really the conclusion to chapter 10 and transitions us back to the narrative, the action. You can look at chapter 11, verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. So this second discourse, which was recorded in chapter 10, was all about Jesus commissioning the 12 disciples, sending them out to preach for the very first time. Now, Matthew's emphasis is not on the trip itself. He doesn't even tell us how it went, unlike Mark and the others, like, did they succeed? Were they rejected? How'd it go? It's not really on Matthew's mind. That's because, as we found, that the words of Jesus in this chapter were very much intended to reach well beyond that first limited mission trip of the 12. They were meant to prepare the apostles and the church for their long-term global mission. But these instructions have concluded, and so the 12, off they go. And meanwhile, Jesus resumes his own ministry. He wasn't training up the 12 and sending them out so that he could finally go take a vacation. Or get some rest. He, he is not stopping. He's continuing to go teach, preach, reach the lost. It's the work he came to do. The disciples were trained up to be an extension of his ministry to, to further the reach. That work continues for us today to bring good news to the lost. But for now, Jesus and the twelve, they split up, sends them out in pairs to preach, and he keeps doing the same thing. Now, what happens next? Well, so far, what has been the overall response to the messianic ministry of Jesus? So far in Matthew, it's been one of amazement. You have to give it one word, amazement. That theme has cropped up through these early chapters here. We see the crowds amazed at the healing of Jesus. Nothing like this has ever been seen before. And the crowds are also amazed at the teaching of Jesus. No one's ever heard this. He teaches God's word with power and authority. 
And as a result, the news of Jesus was spreading everywhere. That's another early theme. His popularity was rising. Who is this Jesus? Could he be the Messiah? The stories of Jesus traveled throughout the region. and Thousands are streaming to see him and hear him. But a shift takes place in the response to Jesus starting right here in chapter 11. Now we start to see the other side to how people were responding to the ministry of Jesus. And some people were less amazed. That's because his messianic ministry did not match up to their expectations. And from the religious leaders down to the people, their idea of the Messiah was more a, a political ruler than a spiritual savior. Their hope was in a king who would free them from the clutches of Rome and their oppression, and would restore Israel to national sovereignty and prominence. Now, these expectations are not patently false. The Messiah will return again. He will be a conquering king. But they also failed to appreciate the Messiah's two comings and his greater work of conquering sin. I mean, when you think about it, forget Rome, sin, Satan, death. These are the real enemies the Messiah came to overcome. But they paid little attention to these. And so that as they witnessed the ministry of Jesus and he's, he's defeating sin and Satan and death time and time again, but not Rome, this, this doesn't compute with the leaders of the people. It's not what they were looking for. Their amazement wears off when they realize he does not serve their agenda. And so the reaction to Jesus starts to take a negative turn. This starts in chapter 11, and it's only going to intensify. In the next two chapters, we see a response toward Jesus of criticism, indifference, unbelief, rejection. Chapter 12 ends with utter blasphemy, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Throughout chapter 10, we found that Jesus gave his disciples an expectation of opposition. He says in chapter 10, verse 22, you will be hated by all because of my name. But we find that he experienced that opposition first. And that's what we start to see here in chapter 11. We get a catalog of wrong responses to the ministry of Jesus. But it starts off really in a bewildering way because the first wrong response to Jesus does not come from the unbelieving crowds or the hypocritical leaders, but from John the Baptist. And it's a response of doubt. Now, this, this is not the same as hostile rejection. It's not. But it goes to show just how widely the messianic ministry of Jesus was being misunderstood. John had his own confused expectations of the Messiah. And Jesus wasn't measuring up. And it led him to doubt. And so we find that of all people, John the Baptist entertains some doubt. That is certainly not the right response to Jesus, but we will see what caused it, what contributed to it, and how this passage is so helpful in answering our own times of doubt. And we'll find of special note how tenderly Jesus deals with and responds to John in his moment of weakness. So let's see this. Let's read this passage, the rest, Matthew eleven two through 6. It goes on and says, Now when John... While imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or 
Shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. This incident and then Matthew's record of it really serves a dual purpose. The first is Christological, that that John's doubt gives an opportunity for Jesus to declare and confess and prove he is the Messiah. Should we look for someone else? No, we, we should not. He is the expected one. And Matthew records this, that we might clearly see Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But in addition to that, we can't help but see in this passage reflections on the cause of doubt and its solution. I think these reflections will prove quite helpful, especially if you have ever found yourself entertaining doubt. So let's first just go through and make sense of this passage, then we'll come back and see if we can reflect on on faith and doubt. Real simple, just two-part outline that the Baptist doubts, the Savior responds. First, the Baptist doubts, verse 2. It says, now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. We were introduced to John the Baptist way back in chapter 3. We see John appearing as this desert prophet preaching repentance. He was the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets, and he was used by God to make ready the way of the Lord. His mission was to turn the hearts of the people back to God, put them back on the path of God, such that when the Messiah shows up, they would, they would run into him. They would receive him and accept him. And so with this in mind, John preached. He baptized people for repentance in the Jordan. He did so with great boldness. John was unafraid to speak the truth. That's why we see him back in chapter 3, calling out the, the hypocritical religious leaders as a brood of vipers. Now here in chapter 11, We don't find John preaching or baptizing. He's imprisoned. Now, this also is not new to us. We heard of John's imprisonment back in Matthew 4, verse 12. 4.12 reads, Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. In fact, it was actually the arrest of John that led Jesus to leave his own ministry in Judea. It's too much pressure, getting too hot. And he he made his home base in Galilee and began his Galilean ministry. The arrest of John was that catalyst. Now, Matthew 4, we were not told the circumstances of John's arrest. Here in Matthew 11, we are again not told the circumstances of John's arrest. It's not until Matthew 14 that we hear the story. How did John get thrown in prison? It's told there as a flashback because we learn that John has been beheaded. It turns out it was John's same fearless, bold preaching that got him thrown into jail. At that time, Herod Antipas was the governor of Galilee, and he took a liking to Herodias, who was the wife of his brother Philip, and so he divorced his own wife and took her. But John the Baptist publicly rebuked him and called him to repentance. Herod wanted just to execute John, But he was afraid of the people because everybody regarded John as a prophet. 
So he settled for throwing them in jail. We will learn later about thereafter the death of John and those circumstances in Matthew 14. But regarding this imprisonment, that's where John is now. He's in prison. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that John was kept at Herod's great fortress of Machaerus. And this fortress was located on the northern, northeastern end of the Dead Sea, just at the mouth of the Jordan River. This is a massive fortress. It, it functioned as a military outpost, a, a lavish palace, and a maximum security prison all in one. It had the dimensions of about a football field, surrounded by high walls and three 90-foot towers. Inside, prisoners were kept in these dark, cramped dungeons. And it was there that John languished probably for about a year before his death. And so during this year or so, verse 2 says that John heard the works of Christ. And John already knew Jesus. You know, back in Matthew 3, we of course learned that John was the one who baptized Jesus by the Jordan to fulfill all righteousness. And that baptism marked the beginning of Christ's own public ministry. And for, for a very short window, the ministries of John and Jesus overlapped pretty close to one another down in Judea, preaching the kingdom. But John was very happy to see Jesus rise in popularity. He said of him, John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. John faithfully fulfilled his role as that forerunner. But after that, not long after that, John was imprisoned. But obviously here, he would still get reports of the works of Jesus. His disciples still visited him. And each time, I'm sure John just wanted to know, like, what's, what's Jesus doing? What's he been up to? Tell me the latest. What is his ministry like? And, well, what has Jesus been doing since his baptism? We've seen a sampling of that throughout Matthew. Matthew 5 through 7 gave us this sampling of the teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 8 and 9 gave us a sampling of the works of Jesus, these nine miraculous deeds. You want the overall summary? It's back at chapter 9, verse 35. It says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Like that's your good one-verse summary of his work so far. That's what John would have heard. He would have got more or less that report. Now, you hear all this. Do you have a problem with this? Like, no, this sounds great. I mean, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing, he's delivering. We, we share in that amazement. Like, this ministry sounds pretty amazing. We've witnessed it in Matthew's gospel. But evidently, John did have a problem with this. And all these works of Christ he kept hearing did not add up. In his mind, something's missing. Now, obviously, he could not ask Jesus about it in person. So verse 2 says he sent a couple of his disciples to ask Jesus on his behalf. He had a very important question for Jesus, reflected in verse 3. This is through the disciples of John, but it's obviously coming from John. And they said to him, verse 3, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Luke 7 tells us there are two disciples, so John dispatches a pair of his best men to go ask Jesus a question by proxy. You know, are you the expected one? 
what do they mean by that? The expected one, it's a very simple term in the Greek. Erkomai just, just means to come. It's the verb to come. And they're literally asking, are you the one to come? And that in turn harkens back to the Old Testament as the Messiah was referred to as the one who is to come, the, the coming one. And so this is a messianic term or messianic title. It was used in the triumphal entry as the crowds shouted, blessed is he who comes, Erkomai, in the name of the Lord. And John used the term back in Matthew 3.11. He says, I baptize in water, but he who is coming after me, Erkomai, the one who is to come, will baptize uh, with the Holy Spirit. So this helps us understand what John was asking Jesus through his disciples, essentially asking him, like, are you the Messiah? Without a doubt, are you the Messiah? That some doubt is loaded into this question is very clear from the follow-up question, verse 3, like, or should we look for someone else? You don't ask that if you're 100% certain of something. John is seeking further confirmation that Jesus is the Christ. But that should give you pause. Because you, you should recall, like, wait, didn't John, like, already receive confirmation that Jesus is the Christ? I mean, John knew he was the forerunner. He knew he was making ready the way for the Messiah. And then didn't John receive like divine confirmation at the baptism of Jesus? He saw the Spirit descend as a dove. Listen to what John himself said of Jesus after that baptism. It's recorded in John chapter 1, 33 and 34. It's John the Baptist speaking, and he says of Jesus, or the Messiah, I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And then John says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. He's saying that of Jesus. So it's like, all right, John, like you should know better. What's what's going on here? What is what is causing you to doubt? You have already had confirmation Jesus is the Christ? <clears throat> Has Jesus done something wrong? You can see how this appears troubling. You have this, this great, you could say the greatest prophet, but now he, he seems to be doubting that Jesus is the Christ. The early church fathers were very concerned with defending the faith from rejection or ridicule or reproach. And John's doubt in this passage was seen as an embarrassment. Like, we can't have one of the greatest figures of the faith doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. So they tried to explain away the seeming difficulty in this passage. They suggested John was not really asking for himself. He was asking on behalf of his disciples. He just wanted them to hear from Jesus the affirmation he is the Messiah. Or they suggested that, you know, John believed all along. He's just asking this question because he wants to give Jesus an occasion to publicly declare he is the Messiah. But you won't find a shred of evidence for either of these interpretations in the text or the context. To the contrary, look in verse 4. Jesus issues his response not to the disciples, but straight back to John. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. It doesn't seem like there's any legitimate way around it. The text plainly suggests 
that John was at least entertaining the possibility Jesus might not be the expected one. So how do we make sense of John's doubt? We need to answer that. We're going to answer that. But first, let's, let's just bring in Christ's response, and then we'll come back to it. Let's bring in, secondly, that the Savior responds and get into verse 4 and 5. The Savior responds. Verse 4, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The disciples of John come asking a a yes or no question. They do not receive a yes or no answer. They're told to report back to John what they see and hear. What would that be? Well, Jesus then proceeds to list off his miraculous words and deeds. And they are miraculous. What he says here, it's actually the perfect summary of everything we just saw in Matthew 8 and 9. Those two chapters literally was this. Like the blind receiving sight, the lame walking, lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, the dead raised up, the poor having the gospel preached to them. That's literally what we just read in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. And these are not small works. There were a few miracles in the Old Testament, but with Jesus, these, these are the big leaks. I mean, there, there are a couple instances of lepers being cleansed or the dead being raised in the Old Testament. There are zero instances of the blind receiving sight in the Old Testament that had never been done before. Giving sight to the blind was actually regarded by the Jews as really the ultimate sign of the Messiah. In the Gospels, though, did you know that no miracle is recorded more than Jesus giving sight to the blind, like by number, at least in the Gospels? It's, it's as if, like, all this was easy to him, and it was, right? From sin to sickness, disease, demons, even death, all things just bent to his authority. He commanded them at will. We've seen this ourselves so far in Matthew's Gospel. But our question is, why is this Jesus' response to John. What's he getting at? Why does he say this? Well, first, I want you to notice how this is a tender response. This is not a harsh rebuke. Like I will say later in Matthew 11, a a bruised reed he will not break. You know, with, with hardened unbelievers or the religious hypocrites, Jesus is, you might say, surprisingly harsh And we're going to read some very harsh condemnations toward the wicked and the hypocrites in Matthew 11 and 12 as he condemns the unbelieving cities and the religious leaders. So that's coming up. But the meek and the humble and the faithful, even though they stumble from Peter to Thomas to John the Baptist, the Lord is always patient with them. He is a gentle shepherd. And so it is with John here. John does not get a harsh rebuke or condemnation, but a very astute response designed to almost like rescue and rebuild his confidence. John knows, or rather, Jesus knows John's weak. He's in a moment of weakness. And so he does what 1 Thessalonians 5.14 tells us to do. Help the weak, right? Help the weak. And Jesus knows John does not need information. He just needs confirmation. You know, look at the answer in verse 5. 
Like, is Jesus telling John anything he didn't already know? Like, no, like John knew all this. In verse 2, he had been hearing the works of Christ. He knew Jesus was doing all these things. This is not new information. His disciples had given him plenty of reports like this. In fact, the disciples of John, they've been tailing Jesus for quite some time. You may not remember, but back in Matthew 9, after the conversion of Matthew, we encounter the disciples of Jesus, uh, John. They, they come up to Jesus. They're asking him questions. They've been observing him for a while, probably trying to figure him out on behalf of John. And so, like, what is the impact of Christ's response? What's he getting at? That comes when you realize he's quoting Scripture to them. You know, the way Jesus phrases this list of miracles really stands out. He's citing prophetic prediction and fulfillment. And what, what kind of prophecies are we talking about? Well, those concerning the Messiah or the Messianic age. And specifically, everything he says here comes from several places in Isaiah. Like Isaiah 26, verse 19, which says, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, which speaks of Yahweh come down to save his people. It says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Speaking of the poor having the gospel preached to them, you have this classic messianic prophecy of Isaiah 61, verse 1. It says, the spirit of, this is the servant speaking, that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. That's the exact same verse Jesus read in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, after which, after which he said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You know, what Jesus does in his ministry is not random. And when he says back to John in response, it is not random. His words in verses 4 and 5, they are intentional, they're calculated, they're purposeful. He's giving John a message. John would have got the message. It's basically like, John, go back and read your Bible. Remember the words of the prophets. You're looking for the expected one. What did the prophets expect of the expected one. Like, I'm doing it all. The Messiah, in essence, was to fix all that which was broken in this world inside and out. And you compare that with what Jesus is doing, and it matches perfectly. Like some said of Jesus later, like, hey, when the Christ comes, he's not going to perform more signs than Jesus, will he? So, look, first, examine the scriptures. Then, second, examine Jesus. You'll have all the confirmation you need. This Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the expected one. And in him, the messianic age has dawned. That is the message Jesus is sending back to John. And I believe that's the message Matthew is sending to us. Because he's recording this. And you could say this is the main point of this passage. That we too are meant to read this and recognize Jesus, he really is the Christ. We are not to look for anyone else. The Jews missed him. They're still waiting 2,000 years. They missed him. They're looking for someone else. There's no one else coming, only him coming back. But we're not to miss him. This Jesus is the Messiah. And that fact, it's no mystery in Matthew's gospel. 
he kind of spoiled it from the very first verse, Matthew 1, verse 1, when he said, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We've already seen testimony in Matthew that Jesus, he's the son of God, he's the son of man. Here we're getting some more ammunition that he is the son of David, which is to say the Messiah, the expected one. To Matthew, there's no doubt. Look back at verse 2. Look how Matthew identifies Jesus. Verse 2, it says, Now when John, while imprisoned, heard the works of who? Heard the works of Christ. doesn't say heard the works of Jesus. Heard the works of Christ. Literally, the Christ, right? The anointed one. That's Matthew's narration. Matthew's kind of thrown that in there, I think, to show us that he has zero doubt Jesus is the Christ. He is the expected one. And all who believe in him, who don't stumble over him, but who receive him, will be blessed with his gifts of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Those grace gifts were won by Jesus. As the servant of God, he would take the place of sinners. He would first become the suffering servant, bearing their sins on the cross, rising on the third day. And those now who yield to him in faith and confess him and follow him, they're granted all of his spoils from his conquest over sin and Satan and death. That really is the ultimate work the Messiah came to do. Jesus did it, and it's finished. And so make sure you believe in him today. You don't leave missing him. He is the expected one. There's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. So receive this Jesus. Believe in him today. Now, I guess we, we could just leave it at that, you know, accept the main point, be bolstered in our own faith that Jesus, he is the Christ. We believe it. Our confidence should grow. Trust in him. We're reading Matthew's gospel. Matthew, he's 100% sure Jesus is the Christ. But again, I, I can't help but think that we're, we're challenged by the fact that someone as great as John the Baptist wasn't apparently 100% sure. That he entertained some doubt. Like I said, I believe this passage has a second layer. It's also quite instructive when it comes to doubt. And I think it's worthy of further reflection. So let's go back now. Let's, let's think a little bit further on John and his response to this whole situation. Now first, I want to mention that the fact that John had some doubts should not actually be earth-shattering news. I know, for example, that the Catholic Church is very quick to label these biblical figures saints as if they're glorified and sinless, but they were just men, that no man is perfect. I don't think we need to ignore the context and creatively reinterpret this passage to get John off the hook. John was spirit-filled, but Scripture never teaches that he was sinless. You know, just read every name in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. You'll find great examples of faith, but they all come from sinners who had huge flaws and failures. And furthermore, you know, there's quite a precedent of prophets doubting God from Jonah to Elijah. And speaking of Elijah, isn't John the Baptist the one who is to come in the spirit and power of Elijah? I guess it's only fitting that this the second Elijah has his own moment of doubt, just like the first Elijah. 
you know, if you recall with Elijah, after God had delivered him from the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, or rather the priests of Baal, Elijah believed that it would result in just sweeping revival in Israel. But that didn't happen. Like, nobody repented. Nobody believed. Israel still served Baal, and the queen wanted his head. And so Elijah just ran away in doubt, despair, and depression. And John the Baptist, he's, he's having his own Elijah moment. He's having his own moment of weakness because things aren't turning out the way he thought. And with Jonah, I think we know enough to diagnose the cause of his doubt. You can put it like this. Unmet expectations of God stemming from a faulty understanding of Scripture magnified by prolonged suffering. That's a mouthful. We're going to repeat that. We're going to go through piece by piece and think about that. It really, I think it starts with unmet expectations of God. So first, unmet expectations of God. Just think now, what did John expect of the Messiah when he comes? He expected two things, salvation and judgment at the same time. You can quickly turn back to Matthew 3 if you want to see this. But let's go back to John. Like, What did John himself teach about the coming of the Messiah? He mentioned, for example, in Matthew 3.11, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You can go back to those sermons to get the, the long version of that. But the Messiah will baptize with the Spirit, which is to say he will bring salvation. He will usher in new covenant salvation. But he will also baptize with fire, which is a very clear reference to judgment. That he will judge. Messiah will be Savior and judge. In fact, look at Matthew 3, 12, the verse right after. He says of this figure, the Messiah, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And notice, like, who's gathering the wheat? Who's burning the chaff? It's the same person, the Messiah. He's doing both. He's Savior and he's judge. And in John's mind, when he comes, he's going to do both at the same time. That's the kicker here. Look, John has no problem with Jesus healing people, delivering people, giving a foretaste of his greater salvation. Like, that's not the issue here. That's all good. But John expects the Messiah to also usher in judgment upon the wicked when the kingdom comes you know, from, from the godless pagans to the religious hypocrites. And speaking of, John knew, for example, that the scribes and the Pharisees were, were phonies. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're leading the people astray. But John knew they're not going to get away with it. Messiah will, will bring them to an end. Remember what John himself said to these hypocrites when they came to him for a, a pretentious show of baptism. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Scribes and Pharisees come to him for baptism. Verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then down to verse 10, he adds, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so, like, if Jesus is the Messiah, do you know what this means? It means 
Salvation and judgment are coming right now. That is John's expectation of God through the Messiah. But then what is reality? Well, Jesus has come. John baptized him. He saw the Spirit descend. But ever since then, what what has Jesus been doing? A lot of teaching, preaching, healing, not a lot of judgment. He's ministering a lot of grace, but not a lot of wrath. And so far, Jesus has done nothing to overthrow Rome or even stop Israel's religious corruption. And so, can you see now how this would start to mess with John's messianic expectations? The Messiah is supposed to just bring justice to the land, but look, evil and injustice are still running rampant. I think John has to be wondering, like, Lord, you put the axe at the root of the tree. When are you going to start swinging? When are you going to throw the chaff into the fire? Isn't it about time? Like, like the, the psalmist pray, like, how long, O Lord? How long until you judge the wicked? How long until you set things right in this world? How long until you stop Israel's corruption and draw them back to yourself? But Jesus does not seem like he's in a rush to do any of that. And so this is John's first problem that contributes to his response of doubt. It's unmet expectations of God. Unmet expectations of God. But that's really tied to the second part, because how does doubt arise? Unmet expectations of God. Secondly, stemming from a faulty understanding of Scripture. Stemming from a faulty understanding of Scripture. John's expectations, they're not entirely false. They're just a little faulty, a little confused. Like many of the prophets, he did not have a full understanding of the timing of the Messiah's work. Specifically, John did not grasp the fact that the Savior's work of salvation and judgment, they're both true, but they would be separated by quite some time. That there would, in fact, be two comings of the coming one. There would be two comings of the Messiah. That's a huge deal, and if you don't get that right, of course you're going to be confused by all the Old Testament says of the Messiah. But it was God's will that the Christ would come first with respect to sin, to save That he first would be a suffering servant, bearing the sins of his people, making atonement for them by dying on the cross. Because of Christ's work and God's grace, we can say that today is the day of salvation. But this day won't last forever. Like Acts 17.31 says, God has also fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus. It's also God's will that this same Christ will return. And at that second coming, this Jesus will not appear as a helpless infant or a man on the cross, but he will return as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it says he will judge all the nations with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. And that day is still coming. That's why we carry on the preaching of John the Baptist and Paul. Repent. You better repent and believe now before that day arrives and you have no more opportunity to do so. But considering John the Baptist having conflated together the two comings of the Christ into one, well, that misunderstanding of Scripture gave rise to his wrong expectations and off he went. You have to rightly divide the Scriptures or else all sorts of problems will emerge. 
Now, we can't be too hard on John, though, because it seems like God gave very few people eyes to see the timing of his, of his word in that era. And to top it all off, though, we can say John's doubt was exacerbated by his suffering. So we can put it all together. What, what gave rise to John's doubt? Started with unmet expectations of God, stemming from a faulty understanding of Scripture. We can say, thirdly, magnified by prolonged suffering. We can put that all together. Magnified by prolonged suffering. So just think now about John's life. What was he experiencing? Look, like Elijah, he was God's prophet. He'd been faithful to serve God his whole life. He kept a Nazarite vow his whole life, being unstained from the things of the world. He fulfilled his role as a forerunner. But now what does he have to show for it? He's been rejected, imprisoned. He's suffering, isolated, tormented. He's probably starving. Has to be wondering, like, how could God let this happen? How could God let the forerunner languish in prison? I thought I'm supposed to, like, usher in this kingdom with the Messiah. Like, where is it? Now, most likely a year has gone by, and nothing can erode even great faith like prolonged suffering. Even mighty rocks can be slowly chipped down by the constantly crashing tide. And so with John, I think you just have a perfect storm of unmet expectations of God, stemming from a faulty understanding of Scripture, magnified by prolonged suffering. John's doubt is not right, but it is understandable and it's relatable because I think many Christians entertain doubt the same way. Have you ever doubted God because things were not turning out in life as you hoped? I wonder if the cause of John's doubt might help you make sense if you've had your own moment of weakness. Would you say unmet expectations of God were involved? It's been 15 years and you're still single. Why hasn't God provided you a spouse? You've been scraping by on minimum wage forever. Everyone else is buying a house. Why won't God just let you catch a break? You you form an autoimmune disease. On your best day, you feel terrible. On your worst day, you're miserable. Like, how could God put you through this? Or you're you're just in a loveless, conflict-ridden marriage. How could this possibly be God's will for your life? These examples are endless, but most often I think we question God when he falls short of our expectations. He's not doing for us what we want him to do. Now, of course, is is God to blame for that? Do you really want to accuse God of doing wrong? Or might a faulty understanding of Scripture be to blame? I find, sadly, that all too many Christians, they, they don't really know who this God is. Who is he? What's he like? His character, his nature, his attributes. And what has he actually promised? What has he actually said to you? For many, their understanding of God is more informed by the world or tradition or culture. And you also have bad teaching to blame here that really gets people off. Now, how many of you have heard some preacher quote, Jeremiah 29, 11? I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. And then teach it to mean that God wants you, wants nothing more than for you to be happy and healthy and wealthy, give you your best life now. But then, of course, when total prosperity doesn't come your way, like, 
why shouldn't you doubt God? It seems like he has failed in his promise. But perhaps have you misunderstood who he is or what he's really promised to you in this life? And then to top it all off, if you have ever known prolonged suffering, I mean, you know, that just pushes you over the edge. Like, like Job, you might have strong faith, but prolonged suffering can wear any of us down. You just start to question, like, why? Why me? How is this your plan? Why, why don't you hear my prayers? Are you really good and wise in control? I don't know if any of this resonates with you. I hope you've never fallen prey to unmet expectations of God stemming from a faulty understanding of Scripture, magnified by prolonged suffering. But I've seen all too many go through something like this. Like John, that they have a moment of weakness, they stumble, they doubt, they question God. But even if you were to follow John in weakness, I pray you would also follow him in his right response. That you would respond rightly to your own moment of doubt. And so what then is the right response to doubt? The wrong response would be to isolate, get down on yourself, and just wallow in like guilt and shame. You need to understand like doubt is not the same as unbelief. Unbelief, that's where someone is walking away from the Lord. They've rejected him, denied him. They're going apostate. That does identify the false believer. Doubt does not identify the false believer. With doubt, you have someone who's still walking toward the Lord. They're just struggling because the path doesn't look right. Experience doesn't match expectations, so they start questioning. But, listen, the right response is to just keep walking toward the Lord. Look at John. What did John do when he started to question if Jesus was the expected one? Where did he take his doubts and questions. He took him right to, literally, the Lord. He went to the Lord with his fears, doubts, concerns. That is the right thing to do. The Lord knows we are all flesh and we're all prone to weakness. None of us is above this. But he is delighted when we still go to him. That shows our faith is real. And he never turns away those who seek him humbly, even in weakness. I think there's so much to be learned from the Lord's tender and affirming response to John. Didn't, Lord, uh, didn't the Lord respond the exact same way to you know, good old doubting Thomas? Forever known, doubting Thomas. But he refused to believe in the resurrection until he could touch the Lord. And when the Lord visited him, he did not chide him. He did not harshly rebuke him. He rather met him in his weakness and rescued his faith. The Lord will most certainly test our faith to grow us, but he will never let our faith fail. So what must you do when you struggle, when things are not going the way you hope or expect? You just need to run to the Lord. Go to him. Don't, don't run away. You do that first in prayer. You just need to pray. Cry out to God. Read the Psalms. Speaking of the Psalms, you know, most of them are littered with reflections of doubt. Like Psalm 42, 9, Lord, why have you forgotten me? Like, wait a second, has the Lord actually forgotten you? Is that even possible? Of course not. He's not forgotten us. That's just what it felt like to the psalmist in his suffering. And he's just pouring that out before the Lord in prayer. You should do that. 
But he also must do the second part because every psalm, each time, he always calls to mind, though, what is actually true? What has God actually said? Who is God? He calls to mind, and in this he has hope. This is who God is. This is what he has said. He has not forgotten me, and confidence is regained. You need to do the same thing. Go to him in prayer. Call to mind his word. Who is this God? What has he said? Get your picture of God from the scriptures and rest in his word. There you will find no promise to to give us our every desire in this life. That we will have nothing but perfect health and wealth. No, you should know creation has fallen and our enemies of the world and the devil and our own flesh conspire to corrupt and destroy. And so you will encounter real experiences of just evil, justice, suffering in this life. But we know that this life is not our hope or our home. Our life, we've died. Our life is hid with Christ on high. We no longer love the world or the things of this world, but we love Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. And we know our citizenship is in heaven. And when this coming one comes back, he will truly set all things right. And those who love him and cling to him, even if it's with a little faith, a a tiny childlike faith, they will be saved and raised up to peace and joy in life everlasting. That's just like the smallest sampling of some of the promises that God has actually made, all of which give perspective to life, and they set right our expectations. What do we expect of God in this life? But understand the right response to your own fears, doubts, and questions is to go to the Lord. He will speak to you in his word and rebuild your confidence. You know, Jude 22 tells us, us, it says, have mercy on those who doubt. Our brothers and sisters who struggle, we're to have mercy on them and help them, help the weak. Well, how much more will God be merciful toward his people who love him but doubt? But go to him, and as you do, you will actually be blessed. Just like Jesus says in verse 6, let's wrap this up. We have to squeak in verse 6 here. Where Jesus says, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. This is like a bonus beatitude, blessed. Blessed is he who doesn't stumble over Jesus. That's what it means. Don't take offense. Don't trip over the cornerstone and fall away. Some have. This is the difference in response between the Pharisees and John the Baptist. Both of them stumbled over the unexpected form of the Messiah's ministry due to their expectations. The Pharisees, they walked away. They rejected Jesus and turned away, but not John. And I'm I'm sure it's safe to trust that John was willing to submit his plans, his hopes, his expectations to the Lord and find his confidence. And you too must be willing to be conformed to Christ. Yes, this will test your faith, but go to his word. Let him define your true hope. That is a hope that will never fail. Just trust this Lord. Cling to him in faith. You need to be like that, the father of that demon-possessed boy who just falls down before Jesus and says, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And when that prayer is offered in earnest, the Lord will hear it. Even if it's coming from little faith, he will hear it and he will help to build in you great faith. And then you will find how truly blessed 
those are who do not take offense at him. So let's make him our confidence no matter what. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're the God who made all things, who sits in the heavens, does as he pleases, yet you always do what is right, what is good, what is righteous, what is for your own glory. We need to know you, God, who you really are, and you've revealed yourself a bit in creation, but most in your scriptures. Let us be men and women of the book. We need to know you and what you've said. You've given us great promises, chiefly in Christ, that those who humble themselves see their sin before a holy and righteous God, but repent and fly to the Savior who was sent to stand in our place, to bear the wrath, and rose again. And we can be saved, forgiven, made new, and given an eternal hope, no matter what happens in this life. All that and more, we must cling to as your people. I pray for anyone here this morning who is doubting or has wrestled with doubt, questions. I pray that they learn this right response, even from John, that they just need to go to you, not turn away. There's no hope or answers to be found in the world, only in your word. They'll find assurance of what you have said and your plans for us. Ultimately, they are to bless us for your own glory and our own good. But when we cling to your precious word and the Savior we find in it, he is our hope. We just cling to him to help those who are struggling, have mercy on those who doubt, and for the, us who are strong, may we be an example to others of, of what the word says and how we can just trust Christ no matter what happens. The word is true. Our confidence is secure. Just, just build us up in this Savior that we too might be blessed and not taking offense at him, but trusting him. It's in this Christ's name we pray. Amen.